the Society of Nuclear Medicine and Molecular Imaging welcomes you to the SNMMI podcast series. This new series focuses on deep dives into hot topics for nuclear medicine and molecular imaging professionals, featuring findings and anecdotes from some of the preeminent thought leaders in our profession. Featuring as this episode's host, Dr. Tina Buner. Dr. Buner has been in the field of nuclear medicine and molecular imaging for 25 years. She began her career as a staff nuclear medicine technologist and clinical educator for Northwestern Memorial Hospital in Chicago, Illinois, where she worked in all areas of nuclear medicine. It was in that environment that her passion for medical imaging research took root. Subsequently, she earned a Doctor of Health Sciences degree with an elective focus in medical physics from Rush University. She has a sincere love for research in molecular imaging, novel tracer development, and radiopharmaceutical therapy, and holds a special interest in women's health. Her doctoral research focused on anemoacid-based PET imaging of gynecological cancers, an area that continues to captivate her scientific curiosity. She currently holds an adjunct faculty position at the University of Arizona in Tucson for research. Welcome, everyone. I'm thrilled to be here with you talking about research, which is very near and dear to me. Research plays a pivotal role in advancing all areas of medicine, but it really does shape the landscape of patient care in nuclear medicine and molecular imaging. Through scientific inquiry and innovation, we are continuing to refine and expand our radiopharmaceutical repertoire. We've seen an unbelievable explosion of novel tracers just within the last several years, which really enables us to provide more accurate diagnoses and tailored treatment plans for patients. So I think it's really these breakthroughs in radiopharmaceutical development and imaging technology and therapies that are a testament to the transformative power of research in this field. And as a result, patients benefit from earlier and more precise disease detection, targeted therapies, and those things often translate to improved clinical outcomes. With all that being said, research is an important part of nuclear medicine and molecular imaging, and another critical part in that equation is the nuclear medicine technologist. I have the privilege of being joined by several nuclear medicine research rock stars here tonight to delve into the topic of research opportunities for technologists. So I'd like to take the opportunity to introduce them to you in no specific order. We have Dr. Remo George. He's a board-certified nuclear medicine technologist and scientist with over 20 years of experience in the field. He currently holds a diplomat of the American Board of Science in Nuclear Medicine in the Radiation Protection Specialty. He completed his PhD while working at the UAB Nuclear Medicine Technology Program. Currently, he has a primary appointment as faculty in the Nuclear Medicine and Molecular Imaging Sciences Program in the the UAB School of Health Professions, where he teaches courses in regulations, radiation protection and biology, nuclear medicine procedures, research methods, along with guiding students in their non-thesis and thesis research. Dr. George is also an associate scientist with the UAB O'Neill Comprehensive Cancer Center and the UAB Center for Clinical and Translational Sciences. Dr. George has many major research interests. One in particular is the use of cerium oxide nanoparticles for radiation applications. He studies the effects of nanoceria and breast carcinoma cells and in mice. So welcome, Dr. George. We also have Freddie Gonzalez. Freddie is a research technologist at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas, with over 10 years of experience working with theranostic clinical trials for various diseases in oncology. 
He is a board member for the Nuclear Medicine Technology Certification Board, serving on several committees, including PET, CT, and Theranostics. He recently received the Spira and Gopal Saha Scholarship for the highest ranking technologist abstract at the annual SNMMI meeting in Chicago this past June. That was for developing an accurate and precise sequential method of infusing high volume therapeutic radiopharmaceuticals from multiple vials. So welcome, Freddie. Last but definitely not least, we have Erica Padilla-Morales. Erica is a nuclear medicine technologist and joined the UCSF Molecular Imaging and Therapeutics team after graduating where all technologists participate in research studies. She participates in SPECCT, PET-CT, and therapeutic research studies. She serves on several committees for the SNMMI. Erica has presented at several regional, national, and international nuclear medicine conferences, most recently on molecular breast imaging at the 2023 South African Society. Society of Nuclear Medicine meeting in Kibertha, Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Welcome, everyone. So jumping in, one of the first things that we wanted to talk about is the importance of nuclear medicine technologists and research. So I touched on why research is important to our field, but I really wanted to get your perspective on defining the role of the nuclear medicine technologists and sharing maybe some examples of how you got involved or how technologists contribute to research. Thank you. So at UCSF, there's just a lot of throughput of research. So we really serve as the front line of people who are making sure that the studies go smoothly with the large volume of patients that we serve with the different CRCs, PIs that we work with, making sure that the study goes through smoothly, making sure that the documentation is all filled out correctly. So this way that data can go forward with the studies. I was first introduced to research on the SPEC-CT side with the PP. PMI DAT scans that we do for that study. And then that's just grown over time with the PET-CT side and the therapy side. So it's just been really powerful to learn how many different studies that the organization is doing and just being excited to participate in all of these different innovations that are happening. One thing that I'm excited to learn, especially from my colleagues here, is going beyond just the documentation and the throughput, how I, as a newer technologist in the field, how do I further educate myself? So this way I can be more of an asset to research studies for sure. Ready? Well said, Erika. Yes, so I'm a research technologist at MD Anderson Cancer Center. I've been really fortunate to be involved with research since I started MD Anderson. I'm going to go a little bit into the past and delve into my experience. When I first started, I was excited to work at MD Anderson. But when I found out they were doing clinical trials, I was like, wow, that's really cool. I want to be a part of that. The first study that I ever saw was Actinium 225 for osteosarcoma. I forget what it was conjugated to, but they already had their team. They were set. They had their nuclear pharmacist, their authorized user, research technologist, medical physicist. And I was in the back, just popping my head around, just trying to see what I can see. They were acquiring planar images of Actinium 225, which I thought was really cool. Not very clear, but just incredible that you can image the daughters of Actinium 225. And I just kept on trying to get involved as much as I could. And they said, okay, you want to be involved? We got something for you. You can do the area surveys after we administer the radiopharmaceutical. And once the patients left, you can document surveys and trash and you can go from there. I took this extremely seriously. And I said, you know, this is my role in research. This is where I'm going to start. And I'm going to make sure everything that I'm involved with is top-notch and in line and ready to go. So I made sure all my documentation was in line. I try to follow the protocol to a T. And from there, our authorized users and our pharmacists and physicists saw that, hey, this isn't just something he wants to put in his resume, something he really wants to do. Since then, I've been very fortunate to be involved with over, I actually counted them before we started the podcast. This is kind of eye-opening to me, over 30 
35 investigational pet research radiopharmaceuticals and over 28 therapeutic radiopharmaceutical trials. Of the 28, five of those, we were the first of these radiopharmaceuticals ever in medicine to administer to patients. And it is extremely intimidating when you're giving a drug that has never been given to humans before, in addition to radioactive elements that have never been given to patients before. My blood pressure is a little bit high <laughs> because anything and everything can be a reaction. Because again, you're trying to identify the proper dosage, biodistribution, and patient tolerability of these radiopharmaceuticals. So all of this is extremely intimidating to a technologist. I'll speak for myself. I was intimidated. I'm still intimidated whenever I read protocols. But you need to just allocate adequate time to review these protocols and get to know your logistics and come up with a plan. Everything breaks down to basic nuclear medicine. Start from there and work your way out. What are we trying to do? What are we administering? How are we administering it? What's our duration? What are our potential reactions? Are we trying to image? What kind of imaging? All these things are what technologists do every day, day in and day out primarily with FDA-approved radiopharmaceuticals. But with research, it's very similar, except you just have to have a lot more detail and be well-informed. And this is what I tell my colleagues is that a well-informed nuclear medicine technologist is central to clinical trials because we can help bridge knowledge gaps between nuclear pharmacy, imaging physics, radiation safety, and the clinical medical team, as well as prepare for FDA audits and sponsor audits, because we are hands-on with every single part of these clinical trials. And all of these items, yes, we may have never used these drugs before, but we understand nuclear medicine and we can apply that knowledge to clinical trials. It's a very long-winded answer, but in a nutshell, research breaks down to basic nuclear medicine. And it's good to have those fundamental core knowledge of nuclear medicine and apply that to clinical trials. So that's kind of my backstory, how I got involved with this. Thank you. Remo, did you want to comment on anything here? I just wanted to mention that others in this panel have valuable experience in clinical trials, and that is something which I do not have. But I can provide a perspective on the basic science aspect of things. We know that in nuclear medicine, we have four groups of professionals. One is the technologist, we have the physician, we have the medical physicist, and we have the nuclear pharmacist. Each of them are good in their fields. And if you look at the other three professionals, they have their own societies and they have their active research component that is being promoted by their professional bodies and their certification bodies. Of course, we all come under the umbrella of Society of Nuclear Medicine and Molecular Imaging. But with regard to technologists, I feel that we would need to educate more as to the opportunities that technologists have in research, especially with the advent of molecular imaging. And SNMMI, by creating this podcast, I think is heading in the right direction to bring this important aspect for the technologists. I believe that there is a lot of roles that nuclear medicine technologists can play in the research realm. Now, being a technologist and being a scientist, one thing which I'm really interested is in developing leadership role of technologists in research. Now, we know that clinical imaging is the realm of the physicians, the MDs, the DOs, and the nurse practitioners. I don't think that PAs can serve as principal investigators, but this 
other three groups can. On the other hand, nuclear medicine technologists, for them to take a leadership role, they have to get into preclinical imaging or postclinical research. Those areas can definitely use the leadership role of nuclear medicine technologists. Now, that being said, I'm not well versed in clinical trials. My fellow panelists can definitely shed more light on that. I may be wrong. Now, with regard to preclinical imaging, there's a lot of areas the technologists can do research as well as to new to the field. A field can expand only from within as new knowledge is produced by the professionals within the field. Some of the areas that technologists can work as far as I believe there is infection control. People can work in bringing out better biosafety aspects. Of course, radiation safety. With the advent of dosimetry, that has opened up new roles for technologists. Then there's quite a few areas. There's database management, developing of standards, imaging standards, NEMA protocols, DICOM protocols. They can get into image software development, data analysis, Another area that needs nuclear medicine technologies expertise and development of new aspects is how to train the staff well, including the various investigators that are not familiar with our fields. Of course, taking part in the development of imaging probes and working on animal models is something technologists can do. Improving process designs, for example, imaging center design, how to improve those, you know, procedural improvements, research outcomes, outcomes research is a very important aspect, especially with the advent of newer drugs. Quality control of instruments and processes and quality assurance aspects. So I believe there's a lot of things into which nuclear medicine technologies can venture in and create new knowledge for others to follow in their footsteps. Thank you so much, all of you, for sharing your experiences. I think clearly there is a broad range of activities and responsibilities for nuclear medicine technologists and research. And it's important to note that those roles may not all look the same for everyone, but there are a lot of opportunities. So I want to jump into the educational pathways and skill development for technologists who want to get into research. And I think this is really important because we have such a diverse education pathway for our technologists. We have associate degree programs, we have bachelor's programs, and then we have those at the master's level as well. So for me, when I started in nuclear medicine 25 years ago, I went through an associate degree program, and I did not have research component into that. At the associate level, it was cramming in all nuclear medicine courses that we could. If you look at some of the bachelor's and, and definitely the master's degrees, they are very research heavy. So that's where they learn their scientific writing and things like that. I will tell you that I was very fortunate, started my career at Northwestern Memorial Hospital in downtown Chicago, and I spent the first 14 years there. And I had very, very strong physician scientist leaders and other scientists that put me on the right path to getting into research. They taught me how to do the scientific writing, statistical analyses, things like that. But I did not have that in my program. So from your perspective, each of you, how did you prepare for your pathway or skill development in getting involved with research? So I think it's been really wonderful to have an institution that is so research rich because that gives you opportunities. And I actually, as a student before joining UCSF, was following the research of Dr. Thomas Hope. So he was doing gallium-68 dotatate at the time, which evolved to lutetium-177 dotatate. And basically after work, they were doing some phantoms. <laughs> and I was curious and jumped on board, offered 
to image those phantoms. And that led to me participating in paperwork on that. But I feel like there's that mentorship aspect of it, in addition to the formal education. And I think there's an opportunity, as you mentioned, Tina, to develop a more formal pathway for technologists to say, hey, I want to go into research. What are the different portions that I need? And beyond CEUs and going to conferences, what can be a formal certification that we can do potentially so this way we can develop more confidence in doing the research and creating posters and writing papers so this way we can better inform our scientists how we can help our help research evolve to where it needs to be and get the outcomes that they're expecting. Great. Thank you so much, Erica. Yeah, well said, Erica. I didn't know it about you, Tina. So interesting, you know, where you start off and how you ended up. That's amazing. So I did attend a bachelor's degree program for nuclear medicine. I went to University of Incarnate Word in San Antonio, really good school. And I never even thought that I would be involved in research. As a student, I was very curious about everything, not just, okay, I'm going to give this drug, I'm going to image, and then I'm going to send the images off. Okay, then what? What are we going to do with this? How are we going to analyze it? How is this going to benefit the patient? How is this going to affect them later? on down the road. How does this piece of the puzzle fit? I probably annoyed my clinical preceptors and my professors, but hey, I'm paying for tuition, so get to put up my questions. That's the way I always approach things. And I approach that in the hospital as well. And working at a large academic institution at MD Anderson, the first thing that really said, hey, I can do research was I was doing a pre-Y90 liver microsphere patient. We were doing the mapping with technetium MAA. And I noticed that we were imaging the patient. It was 40 minutes for a spec CT. And it was a nice focal lesion in the liver. And I was looking at it and I was actually doing counts on my own rudimentary dosimetry without having having any dosimetry background whatsoever. And I was talking to one of our medical physicists. I'm like, I think we can reduce this imaging time because we have such a good signal. But I want to know, like, should it be a 38-minute spec, 11-minute spec, a 22-minute spec? Why did we decide on 40 minutes? And he was like, well, let's design an experiment and let's test it. I'm like, okay, that sounds cool. So we tricked the scanner and made it do list mode by acquiring two spec CTs one in the foreground and one in the background. Again, brilliant medical physicist. That was actually Dr. Capita. And he came up with this workflow and then I was able to process it. And from there, we were able to rebin the images back to different time points from, I believe it was 40 seconds per stop all the way to 10 seconds per stop. And we looked at the signal to noise ratio and we identified, okay, at 16 seconds per stop, you have a really good image signal to noise ratio, good diagnostic imaging quality, and it's not very long for the patient. I'm like, this is awesome. Okay, so we did it. So we improved something. And then he's like, hey, this is really good. You should turn this into an abstract. I'm like, cool, what's that? And you know, he basically guided me and showed me how to write an abstract, what's involved and submit it to SNMI. I'm like, okay, this is cool. I'm not going to get accepted, but hey, I'm going to learn from this and I'm going to do the best I can and I'm going to keep on improving. I was very fortunate to get accepted as an oral presentation and present my case and got some really good feedback. And I'm really proud to say that this workflow is still in use at MD Anderson, you know, 10 years later. And we've saved so much imaging time for so many hundreds, if not thousands of patients throughout the year. And if it really wasn't for leadership and support and having someone guide you, I probably wouldn't have gotten involved with research. I just would have been naturally curious trying to like tinker things on paper and Excel spreadsheets. But I do agree that we do need a better pathway for technologists to get involved with research. I have read 
so many articles on my own, talk to so many physicians, scientists, anybody who I can get knowledge from to try and grasp the enormous perspective that is clinical research and theranostic trials. And it's really difficult because there's so much involved with research, but maybe just a little bit more guidance for technologists to be able to follow and adhere to. I could definitely see more technologists jumping in. You just need to get shown the way and text will take it from there. I'd like to add on to that, Freddie. I think, A, I love the curiosity that you showed to try to improve the imaging for the patient experience, because I think that's something that's really, really important. We started off with an hour and a half of imaging for post-therapy during the research trial. We've now gotten it to the point where it is a half hour session for our patients getting the same quality images and just realizing that we have given an hour back to our patients of their lives. So in the design of these studies, I feel like we need to definitely bring in the patient experience so they know the expectation that the clinical trial has of them. And so this way they are aware, their caretakers are aware, and they can really have agency as far as what their participation is and what the outcomes that they are offering can give to other potential patients. And I would just agree with you, Freddie, in that going into your first abstract, if you did not go to a program that was very strong and had a research component, you kind of don't know what you don't know. And the good thing is having that mentor there that can walk you through it. So the very first abstract I ever submitted was in 2003, and it was on Y90 administration of Zevelin. So I had no idea what I was doing. And I will tell you that if I did not have strong physician scientists helping me through that process, it probably wouldn't have got accepted because the research itself was great. It was conducted phenomenally, but unless you know how to do scientific writing, that is a barrier in and of itself. So having that is really helpful. So I would agree with you on that. Remo, do you have anything you want to share with us about this topic? Yeah, I can give a little explanation of how I got into the research. So my mom was a biology teacher and she wanted me to learn biology. So I got into a bachelor's program in zoology, botany and biochemistry. And then after that, my natural, so this was in India, you know, I'm basically from India. And my natural progression was to do a master's degree because with a biology degree, I wouldn't be able to get a job. So I went for my master's, was in biophysics, and then I didn't know what to do after that. But there was a paper in biophysics that discussed nuclear medicine, but I did not exactly know what it was. And then I saw an advertisement in a in a newspaper for a program that was a post-bac program. It didn't mention nuclear medicine. It was a different name. It was something like medical radioisotope technology, you know, something like that. And I thought, oh, maybe I could use that for my research because I wanted to get into research from my master's degree onwards, but I wanted to do teaching too. And then I joined this program and it was a very intense program. And I was able to suddenly understand what nuclear medicine was in quite depth. And that's when I came to know that this was a field in itself and that I could make a living out of this. Oh my goodness. I was so excited. And before even I completed my final exam, I got an offer for a job. And so I and an MD who was doing a course at that time in our institution, we both helped to start a imaging center in my local place. And but then, you know, but I still had a passion for research and academia. So I kept looking for opportunities to get into those fields, even while I was working in the clinic. So I actually joined for along with my job for a part time PhD. And I was 
also teaching part-time, helping out with their radiation biology course there at the university. I did that for about three years in India, and that's when I applied and got selected for a, to join a company in Michigan. This was a mobile company doing cardiac studies, and they promised you know profit sharing and a decent salary. So I joined them and worked there for about two years. Then I wanted a stable, much more predictable lifestyle, so I moved to a hospital in Indiana. I worked there for about four years, but you know I kept applying for that graduate school. It was always in the back of my mind. Uh, in, the, in the meantime, I got married, had children. But then this position at UAB opened up and I grabbed it. It was like my dream job. So because one of the requirements was that time, one of the requirements was that I obtained a PhD while working, while teaching in the program. And it was what doctor ordered. So I joined UAB and uh, in the School of Health Professions in the Nuclear Medicine Technology Program. Uh, it was an undergraduate program at that time. My program director and others helped pulled some strings and got me an admission in the School of Medicine for the biochemistry program there. So I joined that. And about five years later, I got my PhD. I started working on my own. So one thing about faculty position is that you have a lot of leeway, which I really enjoyed so that I can create my own studies and started mentoring students. First, it was a little hard. I had still my mentor guiding me. And eventually things worked out. You know, we had many posters and, and abstracts in the society meetings. In the 2023 meeting, actually, I was given the ERF SNMMI TS Professional Development Award for continuing my research work and, and for the presentations. Also, in 2023 meeting, in our article, we had a CE article published called Going Nuclear with Amino Acids and Proteins. It was with my colleagues here in the department. So that earned the Editor's Choice Award for the best CE article. So uh, the CE article was involving clinical technologists who are currently working. So uh, it was a joint venture and I really enjoyed it. I could see the passion in these folks who are involved with clinics. And so I really enjoyed my work. I think that we each clearly have very different educational pathways or skills training that led us each into research. But I think that that's what the beauty of it is, is that we all have these different experiences. One of the things, though, that I think that we each have in common is that we're all either were or are uh, at major academic centers that do research. So Freddie's at MD Anderson, Remo's at UAB, and Erica at UCSF. These are major centers that engage in research. So for me at Northwestern 25 years ago, they were very active in a lot of research. But over the years, I think that we don't see as much research in nuclear medicine and molecular imaging. And really, you find it only in these big academic centers. So, you know, how do we reach out to the technologists who may be interested in getting involved in research, but they do not have the same resources at an academic center like we all did? Can you share any thoughts on things that technologists may be able to do to help find different opportunities for them to engage in research? Yeah, and what immediately comes to mind are patient advocacy organizations. The first one that I was introduced to was NetRF. They support Neuroendocrine Tumor Foundation. So if there's a passion that a technologist that might have, they might go to an advocacy organization. That might be a pathway to do research. Maybe there's an opportunity to do citizen research. If there is a project that one of these advocacy programs or if SNMMI has, hey, we need to get data from 
different institutions, maybe there's a way of kind of crowdsourcing that data that can be an on-ramp to research that might be an opportunity that hasn't been explored yet. That's a fantastic idea. And actually, that's not something that I have thought of in the past, but I think it's a good opportunity for them to engage in some data sourcing to get that first level experience with some of that. Excellent idea. Anyone else have any ideas that they could share for someone that may not have the same resources? So it's a great point, Erika. I didn't think about that either, but so I just wanted to mention there are primarily three phases in clinical trial. Phase one are the first in human. You're trying to identify how the drug works, if it's going to make patients sick or not. Those are done more at big academic centers because they involve a lot of resources. Once you go to phase two, then it becomes a little bit more streamlined. You may have some dose escalation where you increase your radioactive dose amount, look for dose limiting toxicities. And then once it gets past phase two, you have phase three. Some examples of phase three trials that are going on right now is the NETR2 trial, where we're administering Ludothera first as a frontline treatment for patients with neuroendocrine tumors, I believe G2 and G3. Infusion follows a very similar flow to the FDA-approved clinical trial indication. This can be done at most clinical nuclear medicine facilities where you're doing Ludothera. And also with Plavicto, we have the PSMA4 and the PSMA addition trials that look at two different prostate cancer groups. And it follows the exact same flow as clinical Plavicto. So if you're doing those, you can be involved with research. It's not as intense as it may sound. You still have to be very well informed and very detailed, but it's very doable for a lot of nuclear medicine clinics. I would also recommend reaching out to your local chapter for nuclear medicine. It just doesn't have to be patient research. There's so much research that goes out there. Even with the NMTCB organization that I'm involved with and also ART, they'll reach out and do surveys of technologists for various different applications in the field. Also, review the Journal of Nuclear Medicine and Nuclear Medicine Technology. These are abstracts and manuals that have been published and submitted by fellow technologists who have been in the field. I learned so much about infusions from reading numerous JNMT articles from the US and from Europe, and that's what I was able to use to, to figure out our infusion technique. So I know it can be intimidating if you're not like at a big institution, but there's so many resources out there. You just have to get online and review those, those items. So that's what I would suggest. Yeah, I totally agree with what Freddie just mentioned that I really believe that the research driver in any setting is going to be academia. It all starts with some kind of connection with academia. The easiest way I believe for technologists to get into research is to be involved with mentoring students to serve as clinical faculty. Technologists can take part in student projects and then help them with their projects. And then, you know, once they leave, they can continue the project, take it to further heights. When such an initiative is taken by the technologist, that will gain the confidence of others in the department, especially the stakeholders, the physicians, the department admin. They will most probably encourage this. If they don't, then the priorities are different. So like Tina mentioned, it's important to find a mentor for research. I have a mentor. Even though I am mentoring other students, I do have my own mentor. It's important to work with another brain to plan out experiments and to discuss the initiatives. It's also important once you're working on research to invite other technologists and other clinical staff to participate in what you're doing because teamwork makes this really fruitful. And then people can recruit students who are interested in the projects. And then whatever work is done should not go away. It needs to be published. Publish, publish. Do work, publish. Because 
publishing leaves our mark on the world for the future generations. Now, after publishing, next step is applying for funding. And SNMMI has funding information. They're on their website. One can apply for funding. And if it's a large enough funding, you could write your own salary. Actually, you can get salary support. That is down the road. And with the clinical expertise, that's not far-fetched. And I can tell you another avenue for especially working technologists is if they are in the academic institution, a teaching institution, they have educational assistance. For example, for me, I paid zero dollars for my PhD. It was all paid for by my employer. So uh, that is the easiest way to join a PhD program and get paid tuition. And in four or five years, the time just flies and you have a PhD under your belt. So these are some of the avenues which I think technologists can pursue to get into research. Well, I would have to agree with you. If you can get your PhD paid for, that would be phenomenal. Unfortunately, I was not able to do that, but I wish I could have because that would have been a tremendous amount of money that I did not have to pay. So I'm all for that if your employer will do that. I'll also say I really do think that utilizing students is a great avenue because being a clinical instructor, it keeps you on your toes and it helps you continue to learn while you're teaching. And I was able to do that while I was at Northwestern. And what I did was some of the studies that I had done, and I would include my students in them, then if I had to, I could always default to them. So for instance, I had done a study on fetal radiation exposure during gestational periods for a working technologist. And I was the subject because I was expecting during that time. But my abstract was accepted, but I was way too pregnant to travel to the meeting. So I had to send a student in my place. So in those situations, it's absolutely good to always have a student on your research. You just send them and they can present on your rehab. So I absolutely agree with you on that. So kind of jumping in, and I think we've each talked about this a little bit, but just to wrap up, talk about some of the resources and support for these technologists that are available, those who want to get into research. And we talked a little bit about some of the funding through the SNMMI. We know that there's travel grants for those who get an abstract accepted, but anything else that you guys can think of that you would recommend students getting involved in or some resources that they can look for in order to kind of take that next step? I can tell that uh, Society of Nuclear Medicine has a dedicated website for funding resources for research. Also, the Education and Research Foundation of the ARRT has quite a few grants. I'm actually a past recipient of one of their professional development grants for $10,000, and that actually helped with buying my supplies for my research during my graduate school. So they have a emerging researcher grant for $4,000, and they have a actually a full-fledged research grant for $10,000 to $25,000. They have a international collaborative research grant for $50,000. The only requirement is that one has to be certified either as a nuclear medicine technologist or a radiological technologist or a radiation therapist. And also they need a two-year continuous membership in their organization. Another avenue is the Canadian Association of Medical Radiation Technologists. They have funding. Their requirement is that one has to be their member and during the time the grant is being funded. So these are some of the very lucrative, these are low-hanging fruit that these organizations do really promote research. Another resource that I became aware of at the South African Association of Nuclear Medicine meeting this past August was the IAEA as far as having research grants and projects that are going on through there. So that's another 
avenue that people can think about that has global reach, as well as other different national nuclear medicine societies. So we think of the Society of Nuclear Medicine, we think of the Canadian Association of Nuclear Medicine, EANM, but there is literally a world full of nuclear medicine societies. So we can think as far as that goes, what are opportunities for collaboration as well as research resources? I will say this is really cool. I'm learning a lot on this podcast. As a participant and also just listening to y'all, in a nutshell, there's so many great resources, but it just starts with a conversation. Reach out to many of these great organizations. It just starts with an email and a conversation. Introduce yourself, say what your interest is and how you can help. You know, Get yourself out there and just get involved. It may be something very minor at first, but that's how you grow your experience and knowledge in research. So just starts with a conversation. Awesome. Thank you. And thank you all for taking the time out of your schedules to come and join on this podcast. I am thrilled to be here with you all. And I thank you. I thank the Society of Nuclear Medicine for bringing us together to talk about research opportunities for technologists. As we wrap up, I think some of the key takeaways of things that we mentioned here tonight were that there are a plethora of research opportunities for technologists. They don't all look the same. They can be as as simple as starting with doing those surveys for the research study that is going on in front of you to getting involved through different aspects, even with patient advocacy groups. So a lot of opportunities, they may look different. There's a lot of resources available for technologists to find funding, to network with other people that maybe kind of can lead the way for them. So I guess before we end, if I can get you all to share maybe your last pearls of wisdom, what you would say to a technologist wanting to get into research, maybe like in 10 words or less, I would say find a mentor, find a really good mentor. I would say leave a mark on your world by creating new knowledge. Awesome. I do want to echo what Remo said. I know one day my time in this field will end, but if I can help advance the field or medicine, even by just a small increment, I absolutely will. If that's publishing, mentoring students, whatever we can do to help advance medicine, help our patients, you know, that's what we should be aiming for. I'd like to add that research is for you. So finding those connections, those mentors, that group that you can onboard, learn more about research yourself, but it is not a closed environment. Research is for all of us. We are all imaging scientists and passionate about this field. So find that path for you that allows you to, as Freddie said, make a mark on our patients, our field, and as Remo said, our world. Awesome. Thank you all again. This has been SNMMI podcast series. Keep an eye out for future episodes where we'll continue to tackle hot button issues in the nuclear medicine and molecular imaging profession. Thanks for listening.